Hell is described as laying on your deathbed, and the person you become meets the person you could have been. This is the Yoakum Strength Podcast with me, your host, Austin Yoakum, and producer Marcus Sassen behind the scenes. This quote leads us into our guest today, Michael Zwiefel. Michael is the owner of BBA Performance, was a Gallardi Trophy winner where he led the entire NCAA in receptions, and played professional football overseas for the Vienna Vikings. I'm really excited to have Michael on this podcast as a fellow Division III athlete and has experience in both the private and collegiate sectors. Today we talked about the importance of play, how an athlete learns through their environments, and how having an athlete lead their own session improves buy-in and what the athlete gets out of that training session. I really got a lot out of this podcast and kind of learned where the field of strength conditioning is going and what really matters on the field and if what we're doing in the weight room really has anything to do with winning on Saturday or winning whenever our games are. I hope you guys get a lot out of this podcast. And if you do, if you found something interesting, if you found something great, it'd be awesome if you guys left a review on the podcast. Reviews kind of push and feel where this podcast is going and where we want to take it and kind of allows us to get on the high-level guests that we've been getting on. So if you guys could take the time out of your day to give it a rating, that'd be awesome. Thank you guys for listening. All right, well, Coach, it's awesome to have you on the podcast today. Awesome. Thanks for having me, man. I, I've listened to a couple of uh, the previous episodes, and you're doing a great job with this podcast. I really think uh, what you're doing for the field, this is going to take off here shortly. So I really appreciate you having me on and being part of this. Thank you very much. Do you want to tell the listeners a little bit about your background and kind of how you got to where you're at today? Yeah. So I, I own a business, uh, a sports performance facility called Building Better Athletes um, in Dubuque, Iowa. Um, yeah, we work with athletes from youth to high school, college, professional, adult. So, you know, basically every make and model of athlete you can think of comes through our doors that we work with. So, I mean, I've been doing this now for, for eight years. Uh, we've been running BBA. Um, I think, you know, the last year, two years now, we've, you know, people are starting to know kind of who we are. Our, our brand's becoming a little bit more, uh, you know, aware of, who, you know, what we're doing. Um, but like, like we talked about here off screen was, yeah, there's a big journey to where we got to where we are today. Um, played college football, you know, played multiple sports in, in high school. Uh, you know, but I really being a performance coach, you know, I probably started back in like sixth and seventh grade for me where I, I thought I was, you know, probably the weird kid in class where I would doodle like training journals, like year long training journals. And track was the one I love track and basketball, basketball. I mean, football just happened to be the sport I was best at, but honestly track and, and, and basketball are kind of my two loves. And one thing I love about track is you can't hide behind fake numbers. It's, it's on there. Like you, you either got better or you didn't. And so I, you know, I used to, you know, jot down year-long training journals of how I'd break the school record for the 800 or the mile. Um, and, you know, my friends would be like, what are you doing, Michael, in class? I'm like, oh, I, you know, hiding you know, away. Because, you know, at that time, you know, I was, you know, that wasn't really, this is early 2000s. This wasn't really a known field or a strong field that you could go into. And I was just obsessed with the process of getting better. And so, you know, I've been re- making training journals and training programs since that time. And it's all come to fruition here uh, with BBA the last, you know, seven, eight years. Yeah. So with your dad being a coach, would you say that um, that inked into why you were doing these training journals or is that just something you think you were born with and just had that little gene to be like, oh, I'm going to be a coach? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, I'm not sure. I, you know, one thing with my dad being a, a college football coach is, you know, I was always around sports. So I just love sports. And but it was never the, the you know, the situation where he was like pushing me to do things. This was all on my own. And he, he thought I was weird, too, because I would. <laughs> You know, at, again, early 2000s, back in that time when the internet was just kind of becoming popular, 
the, the, the popular sites were like these forums. Um, like you go like the Super Train Forum on Yahoo or the DB Hammer uh, Forum or the Charlie Francis Forum. And these, all these coaches would be just like rattling off, uh, you know, comments back and forth. And I would just spend hours and hours on that. And, you know, my dad's a football guy, X's and O's. And, and you know, I was definitely a uh, performance training type guy. So it was never like we were in the same world. Um, but I think just being the fact that I grew up in a football locker room, you know, fascinated by how these, you know, these athletes perform on the field, you know, that, that kind of definitely drove me to want to be kind of like them. Um, and he, you know, I grew up at UW Whitewater, uh, which if anybody knows anything about division three athletics or football specifically, they're, they're the premier program in the country. And so I got to see that firsthand from, you know, the time I could walk until I, I you know, graduate high school. So that was definitely a, a core staple in my development and what pushed me to become really, really, uh, uh, you know, try to be the best athlete I could be. Yeah. So when you, you talked about that whitewater and how they're kind of like the elite level of division three athletics, did that make you want to succeed at the, the division three level and go for football and kind of have that underdog mentality going in? Or how did that division three mentality manifest itself? You know, that's a great question because honestly, in, I live in Iowa now and it's, it's a whole different mindset. So, and maybe I was a little bit sheltered to the fact, but anybody knows anything about Wisconsin uh, division three athletics, they are damn good in every sport. And it's the, one of those things where for football, specifically in Wisconsin, you have the Badgers at UW Madison, and then there's nothing else. There's no D2s. There's no NAIs. There's no JUCOs. It's Wisconsin. And if you're not good enough to play Wisconsin, you play at one of the state schools. And if you play at one of the state schools, you're a really good player. Here in Iowa, it's like Division three is like the lowest rung. You got Iowa State, UNI, Iowa, obviously. Then you have a bunch of JUCOs. You have a couple of D2s. You have NAIAs. Then you have D3. Well, the mindset in Wisconsin is just like, if I'm really, really good, but not quite good enough to play at Wisconsin, I'm going to play at a YX school. And hence why they're so good. All the schools are, are dominant. Um, and so it was one of those that kind of environment where I just thought, you know, Division three is really good football. These are really good athletes. I mean, we're getting Division one transfers coming in that can't start at a Division three school because it's too competitive. So I never had this mindset like Division three is a step down or a rung down. I, you know, I was always to me like, that's just really good football. If you can play at this level, you're a really good player. Some things happened our family wise. When I was a senior in high school, I had just a couple of walk on opportunities at like Northern Illinois, South Coast State, North Coast State, North Coast, et cetera. Um, but I just, I, you know, I wanted to play right away. And so I just took the division three route and yeah, never, for me, never thought it was like an underdog type situation. I just, I know how good, you know, really good division three football can be or athletics in general can be. And so I knew just, you know, I, I would be challenged in those environments. I get really good coaching in those environments and just something that I, you know, was passionate about. No, I love that you bring it up. Cause I think, um, I think the the Minnesota realm is the, very similar to the Wisconsin realm as well. That Division three is not is not that like the Division three movie that's out there. You know, like yeah, there well, are yeah. there are Division one transfers that come in all the time and they're not able to play. So I love that you brought that up and kind of the high level competitiveness there. You transferred to play for your dad. That's correct, right? Yes. Yep. Uh, can you talk about that uh, situation and how that went and how was that experience for you? Yeah, so I spent two years at UW River Falls, so up by up by your neck of the woods there, and it was probably one of the hardest decisions I had to make in my life because I, I loved it there. Uh, you know, I had success personally on the field as an individual football. The team wise, you know, wasn't where I wanted to be, but it was definitely a family decision uh, to come play for my dad. Um, again, like I said earlier, growing up in the sidelines watching him coach at Whitewater for all those years, he got the job at UD. It was kind of a kind of a no brainer, honestly. But I loved River Falls. Um, I you know, in college is much more than 
the success of a team, but just the, the whole atmosphere I loved. I, those are still my best friends in the world, those guys at River Falls. So it was really a tough decision, um, but it was one that best, was best for me my family and it, you know it turned out to be pretty a uh, pretty good dis- decision for me yeah and how was the um i always think about this is is if i had to play for my dad it would it would be an interesting dynamic how was that dynamic when you guys were he, he was your coach but he was also your dad yeah that's you know everyone asked that but you know what you know at, at the college level i think what you get in the lines like uh, that relationship the father-son relationship is this erased and it was never like that was the situation. My my dad's a, a, you know a complete professional. He's 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 probably harder on me than other players. But once you got in the line, I don't think any, if if you're an outsider looking in, you would never be able to tell that he was my dad or I was his son. Um, it's one of those things. I don't know. It's hard to explain. But once we were in the lines practicing, playing, that relationship kind of faded away. It wasn't like a father son. It was definitely a player coach relationship, and it was nothing that I ever felt you know weird about or any other players felt weird about. It was definitely just a player coach. I like that. Now you're you, you you're done with football after this period. What was that transition like going from being that player and kind of being that dude like you were the Gagularity, uh, which is basically the Heisman for the Division three. Like you're at this elite level. How was going from that to becoming a coach? Was that a smooth transition for you? Was that what you knew you wanted to do? Well, I definitely knew I wanted to do it. Um that transition where you have to hang up your cleats is definitely a hard one. Um, yeah, I had a short stint with the Packers uh, for, you know, I was there during their summer camps. And then they said, you know, there's not, there's no room on our roster for a six, one slow white receiver. So that, that was over. I played professional overseas for a, a year. And then after that, I knew I was done. And so it was one of those things where I, you know, I came out healthy. I came out happy at a chance at the highest level. And then my locker was two down from Aaron Rodgers, And, you know, that was a really, really, I, you know, wish things could have went differently there. I wish I had a, you know, a little bit more of an opportunity that I feel like kind of uh, didn't get, but I, I was definitely the player that walked away very happy and content and ready to move on to my coaching career. So um, it was a smooth transition. I was, you know, definitely uh, ready to coach. And so I was happy about it. I didn't have those kind of mixed feelings. I know many athletes do. They, they, they hang on to that, that, you know, I'm still an athlete. I was definitely like, all right, athlete career is done. I'm done with this. I want to move on to helping people now. So I didn't have that kind of transition period where, you know, I was still worrying about myself and my, my training. I was completely done with that and ready to move on to our athletes. And then did you hop straight into the private sector or did you go collegiate or did you know what you wanted to do right away? Did you know you wanted to do one or the other? Yeah, I, I still don't know, to be honest with you. Um, mm-hmm. It was just uh, the way it worked out. The private sector uh, was just something that uh, uh, opportunity came up and that's kind of what I took. So uh, I, I still do. Like I said, I, I've worked in the public sector with teams for seven years as well. So I have, I, you know, my foot's in both doors. Uh, Long term, I still don't know what I really want to want to do for whether I go into more of the college setting or more of the private setting. I'm still not quite sure on that that front. But uh, the private setting was just the opportunity that arose at that moment in time. I like that, taking advantage of it. So one of the things that I, I, I like bringing up that background for you, because I want to talk about how you use that your athletic background specifically into your coaching. And I think it ties in really well because you brought up and you're probably you're probably dissing on yourself a little bit, but you said slow white receiver and that you still made it to the highest level. So can you talk about what really matters in sport and what allowed you to be that high level of athlete if it wasn't this peer athleticism and kind of how you transition that thought process into your coaching right now? Yeah, I, I was definitely successful, uh, you know, maybe despite my lack of, you know, elite athleticism, elite speed, elite size, um, and made up for it with obviously my, my tactical and technical kind of uh, abilities. Um, I, I prided myself on, you know, being the best route runner, 
that there was. I pride myself in kind of knowing the ins and outs of what the defense was trying to do from a, a schematic standpoint. Um, and then obviously when the ball is in the air, pride myself on, on making every single catch. So, and those are all, like I said, kind of tactical, technical pieces of sport, which is kind of, uh, you know, omitted in the strength and conditioning world. So, you know, and one thing, uh, coaches, I think what we have to not fall a trap uh, into this trap is that what worked for us does not mean it'll work for all our athletes. So I'm very aware that what worked for me does not mean it'll work for, for all my athletes because they're all different in that regard. So, you know, getting rid of my my biases has really helped me as a coach. So just because things worked at me worked for me in a weight room or a field standpoint or wherever it may be does not mean that's the best training method for, you know, my athletes. And we see that with coaches all the time. They, they did the Olympic lifts, say, in, in college. And so they're an Olympic lifting guy, and all their athletes are going to do this Olympic lifting or this training program or this training style because it worked for them as as an athlete. And the, honestly, the sad part about um, many strength conditioning coaches, I don't want to be rude, but many most strength conditioning coaches, if you look at their backgrounds, were shitty athletes. And the way that they, you know, were successful on the field was they worked their ass off in the weight room. And that's how they stood out. And that's how they got recognition. And so they take that same mindset to the to their athletes and to their players and to their programs. And the reality is they, they, they don't relate to the players that are really uh, special. The, at, the players that are really athletic are really naturally given. They think that they're lazy because they don't like or do the kind of the the high volume the hard ass training that many strength conditioning programs implement and so you know i i made sure to remove my biases from my training and um but one thing that stood out to me with with what made me successful it was definitely not the weight room it was definitely all the things skill wise that i put in towards my my development my playing career and so i try to take that same approach with my athletes that at the end of the day it's about how the athletes are perceptually attuned in their sport and can apply a skillful movement or skillful action in you know in coupling or in in together with those uh with that perception and the environment and the task i i really love i love a lot of that i'm gonna break that down on a couple pieces the one of the things you talk about is eliminating your biases as a coach and i think that's super important and it was it was a huge transition for me coming out of st thomas and going into the world of coaching and realizing if and I, I had a solid career at St. Thomas, ended as an All-American, ended as these like accolades. But I realized if there was 11 of me on that football field, we were getting beats every single game. Like it, the, what I was able to do is just work really, really hard. But it was not talent. And what I needed to realize is there are kids with these talents and they don't they're not going to have that same driver. That's not what made them to that level. So being able to work with those athletes and realize, all right, these are the guys that are going to make us win football games. Like these are the studs. Let's find a way to train them in the way they want to be trained. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a different, different mindset. And that's, you know, the whole thing with coaching is, is I think you have to take a somewhat individualistic approach to all your athletes because they, they're all different in terms of their backgrounds. They're all different in terms of what, you know, they feel helps them, doesn't help them, et cetera. And so they have different strengths and weaknesses. And I think we have to attack all those things kind of individually in that regard. And so, you know, for me per- personally, I have conversations with all of our athletes, like, what do you enjoy doing? What do you not enjoy doing? Um, and if a person doesn't like kind of what I'm programming for them, I have no qualms at all, I have no problems, issues changing their program to something more that they feel is best suited for them. So, you know, I think those conversations are important. And for us not to have an ego to think that, you know, the training program that I put together is the world's greatest train, training program, that it can't change. And, you know, so 
I, I program things for athletes that maybe I don't quite 100% believe in, but they do. And that's all that matters is, is it something that they buy into rather than, hey, no, this is my training program. I spent hours putting it together, so you have to do it my way. It's rather than, hey, let's let's do what works or fits or the athlete feels most confident with. Yeah, and almost being the facilitator and the guider for their four-year career. I think a lot of times coaches get stuck in the thought process that it's almost like their football career that they're writing on that program when it's really not. It's that athlete that has to step on the field and play football for another four years. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's, a, that's a great point there. And the other point that I really like that you brought up is almost that some of these athletes and some of these training methods are working in spite of things and not because of them. I think James Smith brings this up in the um, governing dynamics of coaching, but talk about we're not winning because of these things. We're winning in spite of these things. And can you talk about some of the things that you think a lot of programs could be winning in spite of and not because of? Yeah, I mean, you could, you could go a lot of different areas for that one. Um, honestly, a, a really hard conversation I've had with myself kind of regarding that the last couple of years is like the role of the strength conditioning coach. Like, I just don't know if it's all that important or if we're actually affecting the, the score on the scoreboard at, at the games. Um, it's really, it's really, really hard. You know, again, that's why I don't have much of an issue changing programs for athletes because at the end of the day, I don't think it matters. I don't think the sets and reps matter. I don't think what like we're programming really all that matters all that much. What matters is the athletes are healthy, happy, and confident when they go on their sports. Um, and hence the last four or five years where, you know, become more and more of like the agility guy or the skill, skill training guys, because I think that's where you make an impact uh, is on those areas that are actually transferable impacts to an, how an athlete performs on their sport. Um, so, you know, where are things athletes are performing in spite of, you know, definitely, I think like volume, I think strength coaches put way too much volume on athletes. I think conditioning way too much running and conditioning, uh, that are sub maximal speeds that don't really, again, move the needle forward, probably time on like different, just the amount of time they spend with us. Like, you know, hour and a half, two hour lifting session, I think is unwarranted. I, I definitely think athletes could probably get by with two lifts a week and that's all they need. And the rest would be, I think more skillful on field type movement actions. But, uh, you could go down a whole list of things that our athletes are performing, you know, in spite of what we're doing as coaches, not only strength coaches, but also sport coaches. Now that we, we kind of know about that part, can you talk about when an athlete comes to you and they're, they're trying to work on these skill portions of their game, they're trying to work on being happy, healthy, and confident. Can you talk about how you go about training them then? Yeah. So, it, you know, it starts with, you know, knowing the athlete. Personally, like I, I feel very confident in knowing my tactical awareness and be—I I feel like I could be a sport coach in football, basketball, track, and baseball. Three, the four sports that I feel really confident in, um, and I've done a, a heck of a lot of homework in terms of studying those sports. And so, for, for me, it starts with the athletes watching their sports, um, getting film from them, um, and all of our sessions. We film all of our sessions, and you know, people don't want to hear, but at eleven o'clock last night, I'm breaking down my athletes' film from the field session from yesterday, and studying them, and, and realize and going getting deep into their strengths and weaknesses. So it's, you know, I don't think strength coaches really know a lot and there's just, which is nice. There's been a really nice push in the last couple of years of, of coaches um, specifically in the football field, you know, taking more of a, you know, games approach, you know, working from the game backwards, but still, I think I feel, I sound, I listen to many of these coaches and I don't think they really know much about the sport. I really, I really honestly don't feel that. Like if they ask them, do you know what the difference between the cover two and the cover four? They probably couldn't tell you. How about cover six versus cover three? They couldn't tell you. What's the difference between over front and under front? They couldn't tell you. And you know, that to me is an issue. That's, that's to me, you have to know the sport intimately enough that you could be a position coach within that sport. And that's what I strive to do with all my athletes. If I'm going to coach them skill wise, I have to know the sport intimately 
detail wise. Uh, one of your later questions, like what are the you know books that you've been reading? Like the last four books I've read have all been sport books in terms of like the tactical X and O's of a sport. So I have really good awareness and understanding of the sports. I, I sit in on team meetings. I go to practices. I go to games. I do those things to know the intimate details of what is actually being asked of these, of the, the, these athletes within the context of their sport. Strength coaches aren't, I don't think are doing that en- enough of that. And that gives me then the background to understand kind of what the athletes kind of uh, intention and attention are in many of these sporting actions it allows me to build tasks and environments that match those intentions and, and attention to guide skillful movement development. So for me, it starts with studying the athletes themselves, getting their game film. You know, when we do our field sessions, we, I film it and we study their actions and then obviously doing the due diligence to have a, an understanding of the sport. Um, so that, I think that's where my starting point is with my athletes. I love that. And you, you talked about the context of sport. And I also think it's important to talk about the concept of their team that itself in the sport, because you can have a team that sits there in, um, let's say, cover two all day, or you could have a team that has to press all day or blitzes all day or goes hurry up on offense is a good example of one and then training that let's say the inside backer on one team is is a big supposed to be fast and coverage linebacker and then on another team it's supposed to be a big run stopping person and trying to create the environments to train that person yeah absolutely yeah you yeah that that's a great point because yeah the the tactics of a team and the position even though they might have the same positional name say outside backer or or wide receiver the actual demands and what's being asked of those players in those positions could be vastly different and that's why you have to actually study the sport and then you know all of our athletes uh, we I have conversations with and we sit down and we talk about, you know, and we, when I watch your film, I'll watch it by myself and also watch it with them and say, hey, what's your actually responsibility and role here? What you know, what's your coach's feedback here? Um, so, you, you know, those things. And that, again, the, the ugly the ugly truth is that on a Saturday night at 11 o'clock, I'm studying those things tonight at, at 11 o'clock. I'll be studying those things. So it's not one of those things where you can just copy in a jilly drill or see a, you know, a team doing this on the field and say, Oh, I'm going to do this. There's so much more nuance and detail that goes into these things that I don't think many people realize that it takes a really, it, it's just a super detailed approach in terms of knowing my athletes, knowing the teams, knowing all the, t- the tactics of those teams. And then we're using that information to guide our movement sessions. Yeah. And I think you, you talked about how, how much studying you're putting into it. And we talk all the time about athletes having to be PhDs in their sport to be a very good athlete in that sport. But if the coach themselves isn't a PhD in that sport, I don't think it, we're doing our athletes a good service. No, you're you're 100 correct. And what what hit it for me was when I started at, in the college sector. I got I uh, my team that I got was l- lacrosse, and so I never played lacrosse. And so first thing I did was bought out a, a bought a you know lacrosse stick. I sat down with the coaches for two hours. I went into meetings. I talked to the players. I played it myself mm-hmm. to try to give me at least a, a baseline understanding of what is my athletes are actually experiencing within their sport. What are the tactics of the sport? What are some of the technical demands? Um, again, recently I had a one of my former lacrosse athletes, for for example, was uh, he asked me to make him a, a rock climbing program. So for him to build strength for rock climbing, I'm like, all right, give me a month and I'll get back to you. It's like a month. Well, I went out, I built the rock climbing wall. I went out and went bowling around where I'm at to experience those things. Like, so I don't like for me, since I stopped playing uh, football, I don't think I've had like, I can count in one hand how many times I've actually had a structured lift in the weight room. 
Like I don't, I don't, I don't lift. I don't work out in the weight room. I play, like I do, I play sports. And so again, I had a rock climber. So I said, give me a month to experience what, some of the basic, you know, nuances of, of what rock climbing is and what it experiences. Instead, you know, I think strength coaches would be so much better to get out of the weight room and play some things, play pickup basketball. Maybe it'll give you a lot of understanding of what your basket, ba- basketball athletes are experiencing because there's a lot more to be said than, than, uh, at playing something and doing something rather than just watching something you know like you said that's coaches need to have a deeper and more appreciative understanding for the sports that they coach no i, I love that point that you bring up because personally i've done the i've done that for all of 2020 is my all of my physical goals for myself are something outside the weight room like to dunk a basketball and to do these things because i've spent the 20 years 22 years of growing up t- telling myself that i always had to be in the weight room to succeed at this thing and then i take yeah. a step out and I, oh i have no idea how to do these other skill sets that my players are going to be required to do like rolling falling these type of things so why don't i teach myself how to do them first so I have uh, experience to call upon and talk to my athletes about. Yeah, you're, I mean, you're 100% right. And that's much of my things, my training uh, tasks and environments have come from me, A, playing that sport, trying to play it more and more, and B, again, not having an ego and, and asking my athletes questions and letting them kind of guide and facilitate some of the tasks and environments that I create. So much of what may people see that I create on the field is really guided by the athlete. It's like, hey, you create something that you think that you feel, you know, kind of best um, represents what you have to do in sport and we'll, we'll do it. So not having an ego like me, I have all the answers. I have this drill, then, th- then this drill, then this drill. It's like letting my athletes actually have a say in that process and letting them actually build and guide some of those environments and tasks that we create, especially as you go here close to the season. You know, I'm talking specifically football. You know, I'll go into a session. I'll text a guy the night before, and you, you, you're, you are in charge of running tomorrow's field session. I'll be there to guide, facilitate, and change constraints and things like that. But I want you to have the baseline tasks and environments that you want to work on, and we're going to go from there. So they have an ownership of that process. Anytime an athlete has an ownership, there's going to be increased buy-in. So um, what I do is a from film study, from me experience it myself, and then from three, letting my athletes actually have a say in that process. I love that point because yeah, actually just yesterday or Friday, two days ago now, we had uh, we had our bigs in the in a agility type drill and we had a situation where they were protecting the pin against a defensive lineman. And one of the offensive guys goes, well, actually, if we set it up this way, it's going to be more realistic to where we're at on the field. It's like, oh, that's a really good point. Like this is going to be much more realistic and help you compared to what the drill like we originally drew up on paper was. And we just switched it and all the guys were like, yeah, that that's way more realistic. Yeah. Just not having an ego. Like, like that's not a, a knock against any coach. It's, it's being an open receptive. It's a relationship. You know, like you said, you're facilitating that. And so having athletes be feel free to, you know, speak up and say that I think is very powerful. Uh, I'm, I'm sure there's a lot of places and where athletes would be afraid to say something to a coach about, Hey, can you change the drill this way? Cause it'll make it better. Cause they'll probably get bitched at. But I think that's like, I think as a player, that's the environment that I'd want to be in personally that where I can speak freely and coaches will take my considerations and, and make those adjustments because at the end of the day, like you said, it is the athlete's experience. It is their performance it is their career, not the coaches. You talk about studying your athletes and their field sessions and what they're doing. What are you looking for when you're studying? Are you looking for their body positions when they get beat? Like, what are you looking at specifically in these film sessions? So the key thing I'm looking at is just how they're interacting with kind of the the information or the affordances in sport. So affordances are opportunities for action. So I'm just looking at seeing, you know, 
how they are uh, interacting with that information. If they're picking up uh, that, that some of that information or they're missing some of that information. So for me, I'm not looking at anything with like body positions, joint angles. I'm not really looking at anything like that. I'm more in, this is the thing with like ecological dynamics and, uh, you know, kind of the business I'm part of the emergence is, is studying the environment as much as the athlete. So because they are interacting coupled, you know, kind of beings and organism, the environment is just as important as the actual athlete themselves. But we tend to just study the athlete, the outcome, the kinematics, the biomechanics of the athlete without ever giving any kind of recognition recognition or appreciation for the environment but the environment is what shapes and molds and 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 uh, shapes and molds that behavior the movement behavior of that athlete and so i study the environment just as much as I study the athlete so i'm studying you know how they're behaving within that environment how they're perceiving some certain affordances and information within that tasking environment um, and then again my athletes probably hate me because i'm texting them back and forth and i send them a clip hey what was your intention what were you thinking about in this one so it, it's like i said it's a dual relationship but studying the environment and some of the tasks that I'm creating, if that information is actually being picked up or it's being you know thrown to the side or what the athletes kind of kind of are attuning themselves to within that environment. So really nothing to do with biomechanics or, or positions, more about how our athletes are behaving within the task and the environment. And then when you're looking at that and breaking it down, are you looking for an environment that they're consistently missing and then you try to create more of those environments or how are you going about that process to progress that athlete? Yeah, that's a that's a good starting point. So if they see they have some sort of uh, uh, a weakness that you could say that they're not like picking up, then we're definitely going to design tasks environments that highlight or emphasize that weakness. Um, again, to give them more experience, exposure, and repetitions to that environment, to that task, to that uh, context. Um, so at the end of the day, repetitions are super important. But even within those tasks and environments, I'm not really telling them. I'm not trying to give them an answer or solution that you need to do this in this situation. Uh, rather than I want to set up task environments where they have to interact with that that maybe that uh, problem that they're having troubles with, and so they can come up with organic, authentic solutions to that problem. And yes, repetitions matter. All my field sessions, all my athletes, we do a ton, a ton of repetitions. It's not like those things don't matter, but it's not like me um, kind of giving them the answers to all these different problems. It's them finding them uh, organically, authentically finding these solutions that I'm setting up task environments that will attack their strengths and also their weaknesses. And yeah, that's one of the things that I love about gamifying things is the athlete, like you mentioned organically, but if they're an athlete and if they're competitive, they're going to try and find a way to win. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that's one of the things, you know, a, a deliberate practice um, by Anders Ericsson was, you know, you know, big thing and still is. One of the things that he, you know, talked about is that the there has to be feedback in order for anything to be kind of deliberately practiced. And so these gamifies or any kind of environment and task where there's going to be a winner or loser, there's going to, there's going to be an outcome. That environment itself gives very rich feedback to the athlete. And feedback is so tremendously important. And I want feedback from the actual task or the game rather than me kind of like me giving them kind of a um, explicit feedback and what they did right or wrong, or they should have done this or that. It's more, I want, I want feedback from the task and the environment and the outcome rather than from me as the coach. And then this is something I think is, especially for the division three level, you have a huge variety and skill set. So you'll have the athlete that is learning and picking up these things very quickly. Like, oh, if I this is how I win. These are the positions I can get into. This is how I mani manipulate my environment to win. And then you have the athlete that really, really struggles to learn these things, and they consistently go through, and it, it doesn't look like they're making a ton of progress there. Is there? Do you break down that environment a little bit farther, or how are you working with the athletes that 
seem to not be progressing as much as you would like? That's a great question because, you know, not only is that pretty persistent at the division three level, but all the high school coaches that are listening. Um, that's another thing where the range of athletes at those levels are, are, you know, vastly different. So a couple of things, a would be that we have to understand that every athlete, there's different time scales at how athletes learn and pick up things. Just as this is in school, like we're not all going to learn at the same rate. And we have to understand and appreciate that. We also have to appreciate that times of struggle are when athletes are kind of pushed that envelope or pushed the edges of their kind of uh, performance zone. So sometimes that struggle is good. Now, in those situations, what I would try to do is match up uh, those of kind of what I would deem as more equal skill level. So we're not going like the best athlete versus the worst athlete in those many of those situations or environments. Um, or for the younger kids, or if they're younger, or if they're just ones that aren't well perceptually attuned, that I would have them um, do a little bit more simplistic, I guess you would say, less complex tasks, maybe 1v1, um, while the ones that are a little bit more dynamic and a little bit more uh, perceptually attuned would be a little more complex a task where there's more space, there's more time, there's more opponents or and then teammates. So the, the the problem that is presented to them is more complex. First, the athletes that are struggling with this, we can simplify those problems while still keeping kind of the information action coupling, just reducing time, space, and the number of opponents or number of people present in that environment. I want to talk about a little bit of how and I kind of stole a lot of this from you, but how you blend this with your traditional in quotations, your like power, speed and strength work. And I know, I know you talk about the variability in the weight room and in sprinting and jumping and again, giving that athlete ownership of their own program. But can you kind of break down how you break up these gamify and this perception reaction type stuff with the traditional stuff in the weight room? Or if you have a if you have a team that isn't going to go all into this skill based work, how they could balance this out to get a little bit more out of that weight room session? Yeah, that's a, uh, another great question there. So something I've probably done the last year or two years is now is, is yeah, uh, enforcing, I guess you could say, or just, you know, employing our athletes to explore and have a little more variability in the weight room. So meaning this, if we're say we're doing like a a dumbbell reverse lunge, we'll, I'll just put like a, we'll, on the program, be like a variability reverse lunge. And so what we give our athletes complete autonomy and ownership over is that each rep has to be different. You can change the length, you can change the angle, you can change the depth, you can change the tempo, but every rep has to be different um, in some capacity. So by doing this, what we're trying to do is, A, we're trying to get our athletes out of this, this, this zone of that they're always being told what to do, how to do it, there's a perfect way to do it, this is the perfect repetition, and getting them to be a little bit more creative, getting them to explore. Um, and so we're taking some of these, these behavioral things that we want to see on the field and we're bringing them into the weight room. And so again, like I talked about earlier, it's oftentimes about the biomechanics or the kinematics, but behaviors also transfer in my mind. And so I want our athletes to be creative, have ownership, have autonomy, um, have exploration, be, be comfortable being uncomfortable in these situations because I think that also, that behavioral thing transfers to the field. So again, the first time an athlete sees that, we're like, every rep's got to be different. You can look can be a long step, a short step, an angle step, and go slow down, fast up, fast down, slow up. You can go a half rep, a full rep. They're like, what? I, I can do all these things? I, and the same thing with, with college athletes, they struggle because let's say we're doing some sort of squat variation. And again, we're like, every rep has to be different. They're like, wait. I, in high school, I, I, had, I had to have my feet shoulder apart. They had to be angled out at eight degrees. I had to go down this certain depth every single time. Otherwise, the rep didn't count. 
And it's getting these athletes out of that mindset that there's one singular way to do things. And rather, you can explore and create a you know a multitude of different ways to do these, have these outcomes. And the thing that I see is this, is that the, the tissue and the joint responds much better, better to that variability in terms of you get a more robust adaptation rather than just saying, hey, if I'm going to squat for the next four years in college and we have to squat this way with our feet at this width down to this depth, your adaptation is very small, very similar. Rather than we can change the width, the toe angle, the depth, you're getting a much more robust um, adaptation for our athletes in terms of the tissue and the joint um, and the athlete being a little bit more of a uh, resilient, robust athlete. So that's kind of what I done in the weight room in terms of bridging some of the behavioral gaps from the field to the weight room. I, I love that. Uh, I had just finished reading up um, Anatomy Trains and they were talking about tensegrity and then I heard your podcast about variability and adding that into the programming, uh, talking about as many different positions as possible, trying to strengthen as many different positions as possible. And one of the other, like psychologically too, is if I program any lateral lunges, anything like that, the guys will complain like no other. But if I program choice, and we call it, we just put choice lateral lunge in there, they say, oh, now they have to think about creating. And while they're thinking about creating that next rep, they're complaining less because they're, they're, they're thinking and processing what they have to do. Yeah, yeah, and you know, and that any good athletes and that what we want from them is kind of them to then create something that they like that, that they own and things that they you know feel will best transfer or correlate to to their sport and so i think it you know athletes will then be a little bit more aware and cognizant of the reason we're doing this is because i might find the shape on the field and this is gonna give me the strength to get out of this position or the shape when i find myself in this position on the field so like you said i i I've saw, found really great buy-in from our athletes and they, they do enjoy that. So now I want to talk about just because looking at your Instagram page, you will look at a lot of the young kids and it, it they are playing like it, it's straight play and you're finding different environments to get them to play in and have fun with. I work with two, um, two dance teams where the, the ages are like five to like 10 years old. So very young training age as well there. Can you talk about your, your thought process of working with these youth athletes and really building that foundation of movement? Yep. Like you said, it, it's definitely our, our program is a play-based program. Um, it's a kid centered, it's a kids run type type of program. Like we, we come in, you know, we, I don't really have a plan of attack. I have some things in mind that I might want to do, but I'd basically ask kids, what do you want to do today? And then every kid, they're not going to be like, I want a goblet squat and, and, I want to do kettlebell swings. No, they want to play something. So we, we play. That's what I, I, you know, I get a lot of questions about our youth things about, you know, what, how do you come up with these games and these things? And it's like, I don't, the kids come up with them. I come up with them. You know, it, it, you know, I get as much motivation and much um, kind of stimulation of, of thought and ideas from the, from the kids and the, as they do from me. Um, but the, the biggest thing I want from that, from that agent, and guess what, you know, our youth program is very popular and successful, but I'd be lying if I said every every parent or kid is bought into how we approach, you know, our our third or fourth through sixth grade training program. There's parents who are like this is not serious enough. I need more training. And I'm just like, do you want something more serious? You can go somewhere else because that's not what we're gonna do. And that's the, the the hard reality of today's environment is that parents are getting sold on this thing that they need very serious professional type training when they're in sixth, fifth grade. And that's just not the reality. And I won't budge on that. And so, um, yeah, we, we have a great youth program. And again, most of our program is going to be play-based, explore, exploration-based, um, game-based. 
but there's, I'm not going to lie that there's, there's parents and kids that are, you know, mostly parents, although most all of our kids love our environment, but it's like parents that see it like, this is not serious enough. They want to go with, you know, the older kids. I'm like, they're not ready for it. A and B, no, that's not how we approach things. So, um, I don't have a great answer to that. It's just, you know, it's a free play is basically what we try to strive for. And what we want to do is try to expose them to as many different environments and tasks um, and, and movements as possible. But we want to do that in a, yeah, in a game play situation. So, I, you know, it's an overall pretty simple philosophy. Um, it might seem like we're, you know, always we have this huge laundry list of games and drills that we do with our kids, but it's really not. We go into the day without much of a plan and we'll see what happens. We pull out the main thing we do is we just pull out a piece of equipment maybe once a day, you know, say it's a, a wooden block and we'll just do what we want with that wooden block for 15 minutes. We'll do anything that we can explore, create. We, again, what do you guys want to do next? What can you guys think of? How, what could you, what position could we put this, you know, two by four in that would be fun for us to kind of navigate around? And that's basically the only thing that we have structured after that is, you know, whatever they, uh, Whatever they choose for that day. No, I, I love that. You talk about the professional type training. Um, and so the, the two dance teams that I work with, um, they're in a very high level dance program and they're all super young kids. And, and I just have watched a couple of practices and it's a very strict, it's almost ran like a division one football team like this. And these kids are like five to 10. So when I get them in my room, like alone, uh, we shut the blinds and then basically all we do is play and have fun. And then when I send them to the dance teacher, the dance teacher's like, Oh, their energy's so high. Like they're, they're ready to go. They're awesome. Like, what are you doing with them? I'm like, not treating them like they're 25 years old and getting paid to do this, you know? Yeah, it, it's it's amazing what we do with youth kids now. And, um, you know, I, I, I just wonder about how many kids, um, coaches, or just in general youth sports have killed in the because of that over-seriousness at too young of an age, or we tap out all of their their resources by the time they're 12. And that's the whole point of a, like kind of long-term athletic development and even high school development is we don't want them to tap out all their resources, all their potential when they're 15, 16 years old. Like we want them to be happy, successful, moving individuals when they're 20, when they're 30, when they're 40, when they're 50. And so some of my problems about like LTAD, long-term athletic development, the models is that we kind of it's kind of aiming to peak kids when they're like 18 to 20 years old. And I just, I have a problem with that because I want my kids to be able to take some of the things that we do and be happy, successful movers and and learn, you know, basically appreciate all the unique things that their body can do when they're 30, when they're 40, when they're 50. And so even our adult classes, like our first 15 minutes is play. Like we play the same games that our little kids play. And I mean, these are 50 year old adults that are CEOs of companies that are like, you know, are channeling their inner their inner kid and having fun for that that you know fifteen minutes and so I think I want to set up my athletes I, I really get at this point I really don't care about like their sporting success when they're in high school or even college like can they be really well functioning people in movers when they're 30, 40, 50. And hopefully some of the tools that we give them, um, they can basically take with them and use the rest of their life and appreciate just how, you know, special and unique each of our bodies are and all the great, incredible things that they, they can do. Yeah. And I, th- I think we struggle in the United States, especially because we have these big four year windows to be able to get that athlete to peak. And it's super important. So you have that high school, even middle school. Sometimes now you'll see some high level middle school, but you'll have the, the middle school window where that coach needs them to perform for their middle school state game. Right. Then you have the high school window where they're trying to get them to peak to win that state game. And then they get their own to college and they're, they're, they're trying to peak for the, the national championship game. And like, I've seen it with the freshmen this year, we have a couple kids that can squat 500 pounds and we do a cartwheel and they don't even know. I had a couple of kids ask me what a cartwheel was like, 
the movement base and just some of these things have not been developed because every single person and coach they get is trying to squeeze everything out of them during that time period. Yeah, and that's that's a perfect example because then they're tapped out when they're like 18 years old. Like a kid's tapped out physiologically when they're 18. Like how sad is that? Like, you know, and the thing in the private sector that's super shocking and just, um, you know, it's somewhat depressing is that you get 15, 16-year-old kids that – that are like hurt with, with chronic injuries that they should not be having with, with, with back pain, with hip pain, with knee pain, because they've been, you know, heavy, steep back squatting since they've been, you know, 12 years old in a, in, you know, in a poor environment. And instead of, instead of, like you said, doing crawls and, and cartwheels and playing games that would give a much more kind of robust, you know, uh, adaptation to this athlete rather than, nope, we're going to tap them out when they're 16 years old because we got to go six and three this year or something. You know, I just, I, I don't know. It's, it's, it's sad um, that kids, you know, are leaving high school broken. It really is. Um, and you, you, at the college level, you see it in kids that you're coming to college and yeah, they have a great training base, but again, they have all these orthopedic issues and they're broken. And it's just like that. Is that really what, what middle school, high school should be about is 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 tapping out every last eke out every last inch of, of, of potential from these athletes. I don't know. It's just not. I'm not on board with that. Yeah, and uh, I love the the point in talking about how can we push because that's that's one thing we talk about. We've talked about buy-in just a little bit throughout this podcast, but talking with the coaches of me getting their back squat to 500 to 550 is not what's going to make them a better athlete. But maybe if we can get them to have a foundational level of movement with that 500 pound back squat, maybe that's going to progress them to hopefully produce something else on the field with our skill sets and everything else we've been doing. So my kind of question then is you, you talked about even with the parents that you had, how do you go about getting the buy-in? Is it just, all right, this is if, if you don't want that, don't come here. Or do you try and convince them a little bit of, hey, this is the benefits of this going forward? Yeah, I'm not a great salesman. Uh, I'm pretty upfront and honest with them. This is how the program works. So before our athletes start, they go through an assessment with us. We just sit down and talk with them about how the program works, the parents, the hours, whatever it may be. We take them through a quick kind of movement assessment. But yeah, we're pretty upfront at the, the, the front end. Like, this is how it's going to be. Um, if you don't like it, that's then go somewhere else. You know, that's kind of how we approach it. Um, I know there's a lot of, you know, discussion and talk around culture and buy-in, you know, something that I don't really think about a whole lot, you know, it just, I don't know, it just happens naturally, I guess you could say, but yeah, for parents that aren't on board, I just, you know, I, I, I don't know, I don't have the time and energy to, you know, try to talk to every kid about the, every parent about the nuances of why this is important. They can see it or they don't see it. And I'm not going to, you've seen it before. It's hard to change people's minds. You know, it's not, if someone has a mindset, they're sixth grader is elite and they need the specialized training. I'm not going to change their freaking mind by the, all the success stories that we've had or, or, you know, how, you know, the kids that are now getting division one scholarships that started with us in sixth grade and did the same exact thing. That's not going to change their mind. So I just don't waste my time and energy on that. People that don't really believe in what we believe in. So that's just my approach. I love that. Cause that, that kind of organically creates your culture at your tra- training center is now you, you're not having to deal with a kid that you have to drag along or you have to, you know, showing up late because you are only getting the kids that are 100% into what you're doing. Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, it's uh, and that's why it's I think it's important to have these discussions up front. And if you're in the private sector, people that aren't a good fit, that's okay. Like we, you're not going to get every client. You're not going to be a perfect fit for every person. It's okay to shoot people away and just say, this isn't going to work for us. So and I've had to do that in the past with a couple of athletes that you know have been in our programs that just have not molded in well and. 
not a good fit. And I'll just talk to their parents and say, you can have your money back, but this is not a good fit. It, it, it's not going to work. Um, there's other options out there for you. You seek those options out, but it's not going to work for here. So people in the private sector, I know we're a service industry. Um, I know like every, every membership counts and it does count, you know, in your small business, like every penny counts, but you're in your best interest to just, you know, cut ties when they need to be cut and, you know, cut those losses because they become larger headaches if you if you continue to keep those people around. Yeah, try, trying to play that long-term game rather than that short-term game. Your long-term culture is going to lead to something where you're bringing in, if you're just going straight money-wise, it's going to bring in way more clients, that long-term culture, than the short-term just trying to drag somebody through for that extra 100 bucks a month. Yeah, hundred percent. And fortunately now, you know, being eight years in it, I'm at, I'm in a position now where I can be very selective in who I decide to work with and, you know, give a lot of our people that just start just a short trial to see if they're going to be a fit. And if they're not, we just tell them this isn't going to work out. And so I'm not saying that every business can do that from the get go. I'm not going to, I'm not saying that I've never had a problem athlete or athletes I've worked with that, you know, have been, you know, a, a, a toxic person in our, in our environment or in our, our training sessions that, that happens everywhere. But fortunately now, if you can play that long term and just, you know, hang things, you know, hang in there. Yep. I'm at a position now where I can yeah, I can be selective with who I want to work with. And if a kid, you know, worked with in the past that I've seen as a negative, you know, just isn't what we want. I can just, it's not hard for me to tell them no anymore. So um, fortunate to be in that position, but also I think people need to be able to, you know, accept that thing that they tell people, no, this is not the best fit. It, it just saves you headache after headache after headache and rather than, you know, worrying about, like you said, an extra hundred bucks a month. That's not worth it to deal with a, you know, a toxic person for, you know, two, three days a week for, you know, hour, hour and a half at a time. Yeah. Drain, training that energy from everybody else. So this, this is one of my favorite questions that I, I've liked to ask the coaches recently is what has been your biggest eye opener to your training that you've done with the athletes in the last year, last six months, that's really been like, oh crap, like I wish I would have known this before. I would say the biggest thing would be asking and letting our athletes lead um, things. Um, so whether it be from warm up or our, our actual speed and agility movement sessions, et cetera, asking them to lead it and, and seeing what they choose. Um, and then just seeing what they choose is sometimes vastly different than what I would deem as the, the best or most appropriate warm up or movement session. Um, just to see what connects with them, what they are, uh, what they are passionate about, what they enjoy doing is sometimes a lot different than me as a coach. And it's a good reminder because, Hey, if you guys lead the warm up today and they'll get out these different tools or pieces. And I'm like, Oh my God, I, we haven't done this in months. And they, they love it. They never forgot about it and they want to do it yet. I, I haven't brought that back because me as a coach didn't like it. And so for me, the biggest eye opener is letting our athletes have some say and autonomy a little bit more. I, I've always done it, but doing it a little bit more and more and more frequently. Now I'm seeing our athletes pull out things and doing things that, um, that I wouldn't do. And it sometimes shows for me the disconnect that maybe what I think is best for the athlete is different than what they feel is best for them. So um, that would probably be the biggest eye opener for me recently. No, I, I love that. that. I think that again, goes back to that choice thing where you, you see them pick variations that you would have never thought about in your life. And you're like, Oh, so that that's what they see they're getting out of this. And then another part of that, and maybe this is more for the team setting, but you can almost who you're picking to lead the warmups. And I, I've done this a lot is, if we're trying to build into a leadership role of somebody that is a good player on the field but needs to lead the team better and need to be in that leadership role, if you're giving them that leadership to be in front of the team and be able to produce what they think they want to do for that day, that has gone a long way for me anyways in our culture to build up those leaders on the team. 
yeah, that's and that's something we've been done doing for a while now. Is yeah, every college, or college teams is one of the athletes leads the warm up, um, and maybe the first week of the year, like I'll lead a couple, three or four different warm ups, and then I just yeah, I throw a different guy out there in front every time, and they lead it, and it's yeah, like you said, it's a great way for them to yeah make decisions, lead a group, be a little more vocal, and also just see what they you know enjoy doing in that regard. So yeah, I, I mean it's interesting because I, I get after my athletes too. I love the I love to debate my athletes and and have these these deeper conversations but um like you know it's it's just common practice today for parents for athletes to just bitch about every coach that they've ever had like every coach sucks our our high school team sucks because the coach sucks and then so what i like to do is like you said like if you put them in that leadership role you're kind of putting them in the the coach's role and so if i have an athlete that bitches all the time about that coach sucks that coach sucks our coaches at our high school suck like i'll put them in that role and they'll be like they'll just be like a deer in headlights oh it's not so freaking easy to coach now, is it? Like not to be in that leadership role, make decisions for the, the the unity of the group, all those type of things. So, it's just so common practice to you know complain about armchair every decision a coach makes. You know, especially after the fact, where you, you know, oh, that didn't work out. It was a stupid decision. It, you know, we're in a culture where every coach gets you know, you know, bombarded with with criticism to, to, over every decision they make. Yet no one's ever coached in their goddamn lives. It just drives me nuts. Um, same with refereeing, you know, everyone bitches about refereeing yet. How about you go out and referee a youth game and see how difficult it is. But, uh, so I try to put them in those roles that maybe have a little bit more empathy and understanding that, Oh, this is not quite so easy. And that could be simple as you said, letting the kid lead a warm up. You're kind of in the leadership, the coaching role. You have to make some decisions. Um, not quite so fun and easy, is it? Um, you know, pleasing everybody in that regard. So I went a little off topic there, but that's a good, I love what you're doing there, Austin. (laughs) No, that's awesome. I didn't even think about the getting that mindset piece of not now they're the coach. So maybe they can see it from their eyes. That's really, really good. And so now we can transition into a little bit of the rapid fire round. And these are just questions that I love to ask my guests. If for your answer, it doesn't have to be rapid fire. You can go off on whatever you want. But these are kind of my core questions that I really like to see. And a lot of the guests that are super successful kind of have very similar answers. So it's pretty cool to see that. But what have been your favorite books? What are some books that you think the listeners can get a lot out of? Again, like recently I've been just been reading a lot of like sport related, sport specific type books, offensive tactic books for football. So like What is Open, Adapt or Dive and two books I've read recently. I've read a couple of baseball and basketball books. Um, I like to read like a lot about kind of children. Like so one of the last books I read was How Children Succeed. I just, you know, about uh, youth development is an interesting one. Um, I really haven't read much specific strength and conditioning related things in the last while. I've just been, I've gotten a couple and I've been underwhelmed and I, just, I don't know, it's just for me, I'd rather read research, to be honest. I, I, I have a stack of about 200 research papers right here beside me that um, that's kind of my main reading right now is just research rather than uh, rather than reading a, a ton of books recently. But if I do grab a book, it's usually like a, a sport tactics related book to get deep in my understanding and an appreciation for for those for the sports that I that I coach there. This next question is kind of built up this this podcast a little bit in who who we have on and kind of keeping the the high level of a guest going forward, but who's a guest that you think we should have on? Yeah, you know, two come to mind. Uh, one is uh, Jacob Ricketts. He's a football training coach at the University of Temple. Uh, he, he's no doubt in my mind going to be a guy to, you're going to be a head, you know, football guy to a power five here in the next five years. Um, just a great, great man, great coach, um, doing a lot of great things with the technology and nutrition down at Temple. 
And then Ben Hildebrandt is a high school strength conditioning coach and, and physical education teacher. One of my close friends, we, we go back and forth all the time on, uh, you know, especially speed related things. He, I think he's doing a great job at the high school level, implementing a lot of these things with, with high school athletes. So Jacob Ricketts and Ben Hildebrandt would be two that I would definitely uh, recommend. I love it. Now this next question, um, and we, we, we mentioned a little bit when we talked about private sector, collegiate sector, but what's kind of next for you? What's the next big milestone or the next big goal that you're reaching for? Maybe it's this year, maybe it's in a five-year plan for you, but what's really next for you? Oh, man, I, I have no clue. I don't know what I'm doing tomorrow. <laughs> uh, I, 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 I wish I could tell you. Um, my wife and I had this conversation again. My wife works in Madison, Wisconsin, which is about an hour 15 away. We're both from that area. Um, We'd both like to get back towards that area. Um, I, you know, I tell people and friends that, and they're like, "Are you gonna open another gym?" I'm like, "Heck, no! I have no, I have no ambition to ever open another, uh, you know, private se- sector or private uh, training facility ever again. It's just, it's so hard, as you know. It is a awful ground. I love it, but um, it's not, not for me. So I don't know. To be honest with you, I don't know. I, I want to actually get back into. Um, coaching in, in a team setting, whether it be positional coaching or whether it be like a skill acquisition, you know, movement coach in a, in a, in a specifically a football setting, because I think there's, there's a lot to be had in that area. And, um, again, as a strength coach, coach, like I mentioned earlier, like what we do in the weight room, I just, I honestly don't know if that it matters a whole, a whole lot. You know, it obviously does matter. It does make contributions to our athletes, but it's just not as robust and, and as uh, a great, great as an impact as I would like. And I think that's why I've gone to more of the skill route and learning about the sports more, because I think that's where the impact is. And so as someone that wants to have an impact and an influence on my athletes on how they perform in their game, I think the next step to get, I have to get into is team setting to have that over that ability to control some decisions and power to make adjustments in terms of how a team's practices, how the practice is organized, how individual periods and sessions are organized. Um, that's kind of what I see. And, and you, you, it's hard to do that from an outsider perspective. I think the next step, it'll be hard as hell to get into like a football uh, as, a, as a movement coach or as a you know positional coach um, but that's where I see being able to have the greatest impact on how the the players actually you know perform on the on, in the on the game day and so as you know as a strength coach sometimes especially in the private facility it's hard to work with a guy for eight months or a girl for eight months and they go back to the sport and then you, you lose contact with them you have no you have no control over what they're doing in practice it's just hard you know when you, you, you worked on so many different things and they go back to their sport and you know God bless, you know, uh, high school coaches because they have the best interest in mind. But a lot of them are under unqualified to be in the position that they're at. No offense to small, you know, many small schools. And, you know, it's hard to watch kids, you know, have a great eight months. You really know them intimately. You know what kind of works for them. They go their, back to their high school and, and things just fall apart because of, I, you know, the lack of say that you do as a coach, you know, in that, that situation. So I think getting back into a team setting for me is the uh, – is the route to go. So we'll see if that ever happens. Yeah. And I, I was uh, actually just writing about this the other day, um, just from talking with Sean and Tyler and then listening to James Smith talk a little bit is we're kind of, I feel like we're at the point where 10 years ago, strength conditioning wasn't a thing. And then it blew up into what it could be because somebody had the thought process and the idea. I was just writing about this, but my idea is that that's going to happen with the skill sport coach or as James Smith, the, the global engineer of all these programs is that's going to be the next step in this field is now in 10 years, you're going to see skill coaches everywhere. 
Yeah, yeah. And, you know, you see it in Europe, you know, in soccer, you see like, you know, specific, you know, like soccer skills, co- or excuse me, goalie skill coaches and midfielders and defender skill coaches. Uh, but yeah, someone in that organization that has like a, you know, in, you know, soccer is another big, they have like a lot of high performance managers. Unfortunately, you kind of need like a PhD for that. And it seems to be in many cases, but soccer, rugby, there's becoming a little bit more high performance kind of managers that kind of oversee the whole gamut in terms of the sport, the strength conditioning and the medical side. So, but yeah, I think, you know, as a whole, just helping guide coaches in terms of how they structure practice and structure skill sessions. I think that, like you said, I think that's going to be a next big step because many coaches in sport, in in team sport, like as you say, a receiver coach in sport, like they may a not played receiver or b they're they're more like uh, tactically based in terms of like X and O's, offenses, schemes, schematics, rather than how to how you know skill acquisition and motor learning for how people learn the different skills in terms of how to play that position. That's the reality of all sports. Most coaches are like X and O's based rather than development, learning, acquisition based. So I think there is a demand and a need for a coach to be on staff that understands those things and then can take some of that tactical knowledge from the sport coach and apply it in some of these individual or small group type sessions um, that all these sports are doing. Because again, many times it, you know, you look at like a, a go to NFL fall camp and see what running backs are doing. They're going over like these bags sideways because it's always been done. They're running through the tackling dummy arms because it's always been done with no rhyme or reason to actually why they're doing something just because the running back coach probably is more of about the tactics of a game rather than actually knowing you know, the movement analysis and movements development and acquisition of, of that position. So um, you'll, you'll just watch any kind of sport individual session. You'll see like, why the hell are they doing their drill? Well, because it's been always been done and they did it as a player. So now they're doing it with their players rather than actually critically thinking about um, how the athlete interacts with the environment and then using that information to guide and build some of your tasks and your environments and your skill sessions. Um, I think, like you said, I think there's a huge demand for that. Well, and I think that really goes back to our in spite of or because of conversation we had earlier is is a lot of times that those teams will still win because they just have elite level athletes or their their ability on the field, their tactical abilities on the field, their understanding of the game is so high that really that drill, it, they're still winning because of it, even though they're doing it. So now they're like, oh, this drill is what's allowing us to win. And that's how they formulate in their mind. And then it gets continues to get passed down through generations. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, yep. And then, you know, if, if any kind of successful program or team is doing anything like that, then it's obviously going to be copied. So just because it's like wildfire. Yeah. Like just because the University of Alabama does a drill does not mean that's what made those players successful. The fact that they're just, you know, the best athletes, the best 11 athletes that any team has is why they're successful rather than a certain bag drill they did. Yeah. It just breeds like wildfire and no one, it's interesting why we critically think about other topics, but not other things. We don't challenge other things. And sometimes like these ridiculous individual sessions and drills that they use, no one really critically thinks about or evaluates, but other nuanced areas they do. It's, it's interesting to see what, what uh, people are critical about and what they're not about. So that's your, your point on. All right. So this is one of my favorite questions of the podcast, but, when you're on your deathbed, when this is all over with your coaching career is done, what do you want your legacy to be? Obviously, I just, you know, family first and foremost. Hopefully my my wife will say I was a great husband and my children um, a great dad. That's first and foremost. Um, those, and, and then past that, anybody that's met me, hopefully they just know that I'm a, a very passionate and, you know, um, authentic person. I, I, I am who I am. I don't, I wear my emotions on my sleeve. Uh, athletes can tell you, I, um, I don't, I don't, uh, 
sugarcoat things. I'm very honest. I just hope people can, you know, will say that, you know, he was honest. He was authentic. He was who he was. You know, he's passionate about things. He had fun, laughed, didn't take himself too seriously. Um, those would probably be the main points. I like it. And and then the last question of the podcast, your billboard message for somebody that's in a valley. So maybe, maybe they're struggling in their sport. Maybe they're going through that transferring process. And like you did, maybe they're in a business that's struggling. What's kind of your billboard message to get them to keep going that mindset piece? The biggest thing I would say is, you know, I could give it just, you got to keep going. Somehow you got to find a way uh, to keep going. And that's, that's, that's all I have. You know, I'm, I'm not an expert in, you know, I'd, in these areas or this field. And so my advice, I'm not a, a great motivational person, but the, the biggest thing I would say is you just got to keep finding a way to keep going and, and things will turn around. That's, you know, that's the only thing I could say. I don't know. I love it. Coach, this was an awesome podcast. Thanks for being on. Awesome, man. I appreciate it. Thank you guys for listening. Keep chopping wood.